Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I get the sense that just about everybody these days is tired and somewhat worn out. And I, I don't know if it's just because now it's dark at four o'clock and so that's throwing off our circadian rhythms or if it's whatever it is, but it just seems like everybody you talk to is feeling exhausted. And maybe it's just because I'm now getting older and I notice this stuff, or maybe something different is happening that really we all are feeling this. But the question is, if you're still working, especially if you are still in your career doing whatever you're doing, is it just being tired these days, or is it more than that? Are you truly burned out and why would that be? I want to bring in Dr. Nita Chinser, who's Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Management at the University of Guelph. Thank you for doing this. Oh, Scott, you hit the nail on the head. Something different is definitely happening. Okay. So I, you know, I wondered about that because I thought, oh, I'm just getting older. So I'm just feeling tired. And then everyone around me who are my friends and colleagues are getting older. So we're all feeling tired together. Not, not the case. Yeah, definitely. So there's collective burnout at unprecedented numbers right now. Why? So we've got 30% of short-term disability and long-term disability based on mental health problems. In the last year, we saw 7.5% of workers who took time off of work because of stress. And all of that is actually underreported because a lot of people feel stigmatized. So they're taking their vacation days or their sick days, but really it's because of stress. Okay. So is, is that where this all starts? Is it all starting with stress, whatever it is? Yeah. So stress is actually when we don't feel in control of our work. So work-related stress is when we don't feel in control of our work or when the volume of work that we have to do is too high, or when we don't have the tools to do our work. And what we saw over the last few years, I mean, it's going to be crazy to think that in a couple of months, you know, 19, 2019 would have been five years ago, right? But that's when it, well, it right. all started. But really, what we saw was people becoming increasingly isolated with not just remote work, but also AI and the changing demographic base of the labor force in Canada, people don't have the tools that they need to do the work. And a lot of people don't know where my job ends and yours starts. So there's a lot of lack of clarity in regards to what their job actually is. And that's causing this collective exhaustion. I wonder, I have wondered for a long time, and I don't think I'm alone on this one, because I, I, I know that this happened to me. When we all went home to work, yeah. Having work where you are all the time meant that I was always working. I, it's not like leaving the office and then you're not working then again until the morning. I found for myself that I loved working from home. I still do, but it meant that you did a lot more work and had, a, and for me often had a hard time separating work from life. A hundred percent. And so stats have shown for both men and women, uh, we were putting in more hours on average. However, our productivity didn't go up. We were just being sucked into more meaningless meetings, or we were taking longer to do our core work because it would be easier to ask someone face to face, hey, what's, what's the answer here? How can you help me? And when we're struggling by ourselves, it gets really frustrating. So you probably found yourself, Scott, you know, spinning your wheels on something that took an hour to do that if you were in the office, you could have gotten some help and done it in 10 minutes, right? So that isolation is causing us to slow down sometimes. Mm. What about that isolation? This is another one that I've wondered about, which is uh, my logic would say, well, if I'm working at home by myself, I will have fewer distractions. Therefore, I will be able to get things done faster. And yet I wonder if not having 
the socialism, not socialism, the socialization uh-huh. of the office has affected us. Yeah, so there were little routines that we had when we went to the office. So when we were in the office, maybe we were there for eight hours, nine hours. We were productive in reality for five to six hours max. So cognitively, we were only really doing our work for four or five or six hours. And the other hours were spent collaborating, going to meetings, being creative, walking from one place to another. But now we're sitting at our desk like little robots and working for eight hours straight. And it's cognitively taxing on us. And we're not taking those micro breaks that we need. You know, people say, oh, when I go into the office, I get disrupted. Yeah, if you go into the office once a week, people are excited to see you and they want to talk to you. But that's still 20% of your week that you're spending. You know, you call it socializing, but the companies will call it like collaborating, innovating, sharing ideas. And we need that to break up the hard work that we're doing. Now, don't forget, companies also, they've been squeezing blood from a stone for years. They're asking us to do a lot more than what we were expected to do. They're not replacing positions and they're taking advantage of the fact that we've been isolated to shift more work onto people. So I know people who have now administrative jobs, people who are working two jobs, people who have been promoted and they don't have a backfill of the job. So they're working their new job and their old job. So the best thing we could do is advocate for ourselves and say, you know what? Either I'm going to break or you're going to fix this. And before I break, I really need you to tell me, where does my job start and where does it end? I can't do both jobs that you assigned me to. I don't want to take this leadership role if it doesn't come with some support. So it's time for us to stop being so silent and thankful for having a job and start saying, you know what, I got to take care of myself here. Okay. So we started this by saying, okay, is it being exhausted, which everyone seems to be, or is it burnout? But as I'm listening to you, I'm wondering, does it really make a difference? I mean, honestly, is there a difference between just being exhausted and being burned out? Yes. So um, stress, so that's where you don't have control, you've got too much volume of work, you don't have clarity as to what's expected to do, or you don't have support. Prolonged stress leads to burnout. Which means what? And one of the symptoms of burnout. So burnout is like this physical and psychological situation where you have trouble getting out of bed, you're not eating, you feel symptoms of depression. Some For some people, there's weight gain, there's, um, there's an emotional component to it, but there's a physical component. Like some people literally are sleeping 16 hours a day when they're burnt out. And that is their body being fully depleted and they are exhausted. So exhaustion is one of the outcomes of burnout, but then you also have emotional volatility, you also have depression, you also have a loss of appetite. So there's this whole negative bundle of things that happens when you hit burnout. I'll tell you the truth. I hit burnout about 10 years ago. I had kids who were 15 months apart and I went back to work early and I (laughs) was pre-tenured. And I, as a burnout expert, I hit a wall and took off for a month and needed to get help. And I reached out to my EAP and learned about how to say no, learned about how to delegate my time, learned about saying I don't want to be on these 10 projects. They're not adding value. And that's okay. But and I, we only have a few seconds left and I wish we had more because this is the really important part. I was going to say, what are we supposed to do about that? You were in a position where perhaps you could do that. There would be an awful lot of people listening saying, oh, that's nice to hear. But at my job, I could never do that. If I tell them that I don't want to do a bunch of jobs, they say, well, that's your job. Do it or find something else to do. How are you supposed to deal with this? So right now we're in a thankful position where companies are not saying that's your job, do it, what else do you want to do? Because the unemployment rate is so low. So that means that employers are having a hard time going out to the market to find people. So it does empower us employees a bit more. 
but educating your employer about saying, I can't be working 60 hours a week. It actually starts with upper management. So pushing on that upper manager who's sending you messages on Saturdays and Sundays would be really important. We also have legislation in Ontario, the right to disconnect. So push back on that legislation saying, I've got the right to disconnect. These are my work hours and outside of these work hours, I'm not going to do anything. So it is called the right to disconnect. It's Ontario-based legislation. And you have the right to say that you're not doing work or you're not going to be available outside of your work hours for the most part. Yeah. And, and, and sorry to jump in and we are past time, but I do want to get to this. I'm going to go a little longer here because I know sure. we have that. And yet I think an awful lot of people would say, I know that law exists, but if I actually try and flex that law on my boss, I hurt my future promotion chances. I hurt my chances to get ahead in the company. That's not a good idea to do that because it makes it look like I don't want to work. I fully hear you. And in that case, I think it may be helpful to reach out to our coworkers and treat this as a collective. So a lot of us are exhausted and we think we're independently exhausted. But Scott, you started this with like everyone's feeling it. Go out and voice your opinions to your coworkers. And when you realize that all of you guys are being put through the burner, collectively, you can come up with, hey, we'd like to collectively talk about this idea. So no one feels like there's a target on their back. No one feels like they're the ones who are going to get, you know, isolated and being perceived as not resilient enough to deal with the volume of work. And the truth is you don't want to burn yourself out. Tomorrow, if the company doesn't need you, they're going to let you go. And you have to think about what your priorities are. Mm. And I would rather leave a job that's going to not literally kill me, but that's going to take me to a point where I'm depressed and exhausted and lost my appetite and have a bad relationship at home. I'd rather, you know, find something else, especially given how low the unemployment rate is. There are a lot of jobs out there. Well, and you know, those 15, those two kids, 15 months apart, make it a challenge too. Uh, Dr. Dr. Nina Chinsa, I get it. I hear you. That is a, uh, that is a rough way to go. Dr. And that Nina was pre-tenure, so not uh, on job security either. Dr. Nina Chinzer from Guelph University. Really appreciate you doing this today. Thank you for the time. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to get into this story that, uh, as I say, it's from a, a survey that we're going to talk about here that. We know that the news industry is struggling these days. That's not a secret. And part of it is who people trust. Part of it is whether people want to pay for something and can they get something that's the same for free. There's a lot of different things in this. But Kaiser Partners did a survey which uh, asked people where they are getting their news from. And what's interesting about the survey that was asked, and we're going to bring someone on in just a second to talk about this. What's interesting to me about one of some of the questions in this is that this was broken down a number of ways, but one of it was by generation. One of it was by generation, millennials, Gen Z, um, others, boomers, older groups. And I got to tell you, I am frightened and discouraged by some of what I see. Janine Allen is the president and partner at Kaiser and Partners joins us now. Janine, thanks for doing this today. Hi, Scott. Thank you. I, I really appreciate doing this. What made you decide or your company decide that this was a relevant and important question mm-hmm. to ask, to do a survey about? Yeah, well, we actually started um, doing the survey back in the pandemic. It was in the middle of the pandemic, it was also at a time where the U.S. election was happening and then quickly followed by a Canadian election. And we knew that something was changing in the way that people were consuming and trusting news. You know, there was a rhetoric around fake news at the time. And so we started this a couple of years ago, really just to understand 
the trends and, and if things were changing um, in the way that people viewed news. And this is, as you mentioned, in light of and in at the same time as we're seeing um, news outlets get shuttered and consolidated. Um, so we, we really wanted to understand for ourselves and for, for the industry what was happening. Well, okay, so let's start with the the one of the key things here, which is more than half of people still say that established media, whether they like them, whether they agree with their position, whatever, they still acknowledge that established news media are probably the most credible places to go. That I think is, and again, I'm trying to separate myself as a member of the media just from the idea of this, that I think remains a positive. Yeah, and I agree, not just because I'm talking to you tonight, but I'm actually pleasantly surprised to see that year over year, even that established news media. So we're talking about um, we're talking about the newspapers, the online newspapers, broadcast news, those types of outlets remain steady as the most credible sources of information. Um, also that, you know, well-known journalists and, and interview commentary from local experts and content from that has been shared from government sources all still in people's eyes, in Canadians' eyes, increase the validity of a news story. But and I and I think, you know, it does speak to the recognition of the importance that a free and unbiased media continue to play for us um, and the need for a support for, for media going forward. But as you sort of have alluded to, it's really different when you start looking at the baby boomer generation compared to millennials and Gen Z. Yeah. When you, when you say, but I feel like we should have that, you know, that sound effect from the old radio shows, <laughs> the dun, 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 because it, it gets, to me, it gets kind of frightening because baby boomers are largely mm, still strongly believing in that that's a credible place to go. But as you work your way down, 85% of Gen Z respondents, so the youngest of the, the generations that you would have asked here, 85% say they are getting their news primarily from social media channels. That, that to me is, and again, not just as a member of the media, as a member of society, that's a horrifying thought that that is the place where their ideas of what's happening in the world are being shaped. Mm -hmm. And often it's the sole source of information, right? They're not out seeking um, to qualify or to get other opinions from other sources. This is, in many cases, where they're only going. And that 85% is is compared to the other swing, which is 83% of boomers who are relying still on traditional channels to get news. Um, so, yeah, the um, 85 versus 83, traditional to social media. And and specifically, they're going to places like YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok in, in order of, um, of prominence. Okay. And so even as we do that, um, let's just skip to the last one because I saw something today online. And this is it, so interesting that we're talking about this because earlier today I saw something not knowing we were going to be talking about this. <laughs> which was that TikTok in the last 24 hours has seen thousands and thousands and thousands of people posting about the fact that somehow someone reposted or put out there Bin Laden's letter to America, which was written after 9-11 as his justification for having people go and terrorists knock down the Twin Towers and kill thousands of people. Thousands of people are now posting on TikTok, oh, I've read this now and he's a victim here. And I'm looking going, wait a second, if this is the source of information that we are now having people, if this is the source that's making people think Osama bin Laden is the victim in what happened on 
forgive my language, we are screwed. Oh, it's, it is. It's terrifying. And, you know, one of the other things that we found with, with the younger generation is that 26% of them indicated they would be more likely to trust a story simply because it was shared broadly across social media. So, <clears throat> excuse me, there's an assumption that you know, if everyone is sharing this and everyone is saying something, well, then everyone can't be wrong. So the more broadly it's shared, the information is becoming more credible or or in, in some cases influencing them towards a completely, we would think, um, crazy, uh, crazy take on the story. But, you know, of course, we know this is a fallacy and it's a risky assumption given that what is viral is not necessarily fact. I, I think there's probably no secret. We've, we've seen a number all across North America, across the world, really, of schools, high schools, and even middle schools having student walkouts in the past few days, doing the from the river to the sea chant and everything. That's been a very big thing on TikTok. That's been an area where that's been pushed. I don't think there's any surprise that you're seeing this response from students when that's what they're getting on TikTok. Yeah, it, it really is, especially in times like this, in times with when people are going to any source to find out both conflict locally and globally and, um, and information on, on politics and economic indicators and making decisions based on the information that they are seeing on social media. Um, it is, it's frightening to, to know that there is, there is little um, that's helping them discern between commentary influencer, entertainment, and expert. I am, I am so glad that you just used that word discern because uh, it's something we do very poorly as a society. And it's not just Gen Z. We, we do, I think we do very poorly when we see something online and we go, oh man, look at that. I, I, there are so many people, even older people that I know who post something on, repost something on Facebook and you're, I look at it and I go, did surely you looked to see if there was anything to back this up. You didn't just repost this because this is idiotic, but it seems like we don't, we just see something and we believe it. Yeah, I think, and, and I'll try to stay off my soapbox on this one, but jump you know, on it, jump on the soapbox yeah. if you want. <laughs> there is a responsibility on both sides. So for sure, there's a responsibility of media and experts who use social media and any real channel of news to report um, fact-based, data-backed information. Um, but there's also a responsibility on us, the responsibility of the consumer of that information to just do a little you know, due diligence to verify the source and, and understand where it might be biased before sharing. Um, and, and again, just being able to tell the difference. I, I've, I've, you know, we, in the last number of years in Ontario, due to a push, because a lot of people were saying, look, kids are coming out of school now with no idea how to handle money. And that's a real life skill that they need to have in order to be an adult down the road. They don't know how to do it. As a result, financial literacy has been put into the curriculum. Mm -hmm. My goodness, I look at this and I think we need to have social media literacy or social media discernment or social media discretion or whatever word you want to have interpretation, something, some ability. We, we apparently need to teach people how to read social media that you don't believe everything you see. 
Yeah, um, I mean, I have kids that are in the elementary school system right now, and I do know of a, of a media literacy course. Um, I think a lot of it still is focusing on advertisement versus editorial. Um, but for sure, I think they, the education system uh and you know, throughout uh, from the time that they're they're being exposed to YouTube channels and and starting to watch Coco Melon on YouTube, there should be an understanding of, of the difference between them. So I do think that there is a role for educators to play um, in helping kids understand what news is and what entertainment is. So if the flip side of this is, if Gen Z, the youngest generation that you had surveyed here. If they are finding their news on TikTok, if this is the place and Instagram, should the legacy, the mainstream, whatever you want to call it, media be doing way more work to get their stories onto TikTok and Instagram that if you can't fight it, just join it? <laughs> there's there's complication to that, which is the online uh, Canada's online news act and some of the the issues right now that um, the news outlets are fighting with platforms like Meta in order to actually get news onto those sites. But the short answer is, you know, if we 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 need to somewhat accept the behavior and and meet people where they are in order to uh, in order to make sure that they're consuming information and news in a way that's responsible. So if you can't change the behavior, um, and we know that the if I the younger they get, the more they're going to consume social or consume news through social media, then yeah, I think that we do have a responsibility to look at. Um, the makeup, uh, we look at the algorithms, look at the make at the makeup of the content that's actually being shared with them on those, on those platforms. You know, I, I don't know if you, uh, sat down and wrote out keywords to use today, but I, I don't <laughs> think you have, but you're hitting all the important ones. And I really appreciate it because the other word you've used a few times now is responsibility. And I think this gets lost a lot of the time. So we can, we can set the media part aside for a second. Everyone's going to have their opinion on that. I think that we as a society, and I include myself in this a lot of the time, have done a really terrible job at being responsible consumers of news on whatever platform it is by trying to confirm that something we see is true by even looking for a second source. I, I think we've done a terrible job at this. Yeah, there seemed to be a lot more focus on it a couple of years ago. Um, I think the focus has just shifted in terms of priorities um, for for managing and 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 working through some of the issues that are facing platforms like Facebook and Instagram and TikTok right now. We're certainly focused on any other areas, but they did um, during the elections. They certainly were making an effort to try to flag. Uh, posts uh, as as inappropriate or as opinion rather than fact, um, but it is it's on it's on all of us to to consume responsibly and um, and to teach kids how to do that as well. Do you think when our government, our federal government, has made uh, you know part of their media plan is about you know banning misinformation or disinformation? Do you think that's actually blown up in their face a little bit, in all of our face a little? Because that means, well, if it's on. If it's on the internet, if it's, if it's been posted, well, we're not supposed to have misinformation or disinformation now, so it must be true. 
Yeah, it could have an, have the effect of um, giving us a false sense of certainty um, and letting our guard down and just assuming somebody else is taking care of it. Uh, so I would say that it's certainly an important initiative, uh, but we're all we're still going to have to do a little bit of the legwork ourselves. And I think you know, I it's it's not all doom and gloom. I certainly think there's a place for social media, and it's, of course. it's allowed a platform and access to be able to comment and contribute to stories that are affecting our lives. Um, but again, you know, I am not an expert in geopolitical conflict. I can certainly comment on it, but you should be able to tell whether somebody has, has expertise in an area or not. One more thing, and we, we have a few minutes left here, and I want to get to this because you've also talked about the amount of consumption, and I know I've seen this elsewhere as well, that people are intentionally consuming less news. And I suspect that part of that may be because there's so many horrible things and just downer things that, you know, there's a, there's a point at which you say, I just, I want to go and just watch a kitten on YouTube somewhere. And, you know, <laughs> but, but again, if you remove yourself from the news, it probably, tell me if I'm wrong, probably means those things that you do see are going to take up more of your brain space as being more important. And if those things are coming from TikTok or social media or whatever else, you're going to think those are the really important issues. Yeah, it'll be selective attention for yes, sure. Yes. Uh, yeah, but I think I think there is something to be said for, especially in times you were talking about burnout earlier on your on your show, and I think there is an element of social media that that contributes to that, and and taking a break from from all of that. Um, is probably every once in a while a good thing, or at least setting boundaries around how much you're consuming and how much your kids are consuming. Um, but I think, you know, if, if we're going to seek out content, I think it's, you know, probably responsible to, to, to balance that out um, and not just, uh, not just trust the algorithms to be providing you with both sides of the story. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. You know what? Uh, a few months ago, and I was way late to the dance on this one, but I, for the first time, a few months ago, I heard that phrase doom scrolling. And I don't know that there's ever been a more apt description of, of what we do on our phones these days. We're lying in bed and that's what it just feels like. It's just doom and gloom. And yeah, I, I do understand. I understand why people might be looking at it less, but, uh, it's a, look, it's a great, uh, I'm glad you did this survey. It's great information and it's, it's, it's upsetting. Honestly, it's discouraging, but I'm glad you do it. And, uh, really appreciate you taking the time to talk about it today. That is Janine Allen, president and partner at Kaiser and partners. Thank you for doing this. Thanks Scott. The Scott Radley show. Weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.